We'll try that. We were talking about worship fails on YouTube this past week where people are in worship and then the drum cage falls on top of them in the middle of worship or the one worship leader was playing on the synthesizer and they were leading in a quiet time of worship and he set his book down and hit the button that went into a dance beat right in the middle of, of worship. And so we are not outside the realm of worship fails after a beautiful worship set and going to Jesus, the senior pastor humbles us all. Thank you for being here at, at the Rock Church with us. If you're home online, we're so grateful that you tune in and worship, um, even when we are apart physically, that you uh, love Jesus and are pur- pursuing him and pursuing him apart of the body of the Rock Church. And thank you to everybody who keeps uh, rotating through who can attend and who cannot. In a couple weeks, we get to have a few more people in the building at the same time and as we, we carry on to the changes that will happen in the regulations in the future. So what was I going to say when I was all crackly? That his wounds have paid our ransom, that as you're seated and as you, you end your singing at home, that that kind of thinking moves us forward. That in our brokenness, in our lost state, that he has paid for us. He has not just redeemed us, but he's redeeming us. We're already saved and we're being saved. And we're going through the process of experiencing his Goodness and the, no, the never-ending fruit of his death and resurrection is evidenced in us when we continue to heal and come through our brokenness into new, new places in Christ. Haven't taken uh, much time lately to speak publicly about, about the offering and your, your giving, but just want to say thank you for your faithfulness. The logistics of it, for those of you who are interested, is that four years ago, at the end of April, we were $32,000 behind for that year of 2018. By the end of April, we were 32,000 behind. This year, in the same year, the same amount of time, we were $7,000 ahead. And so that is a real blessing. And uh, so at home, give, give the Lord a round of applause and the house, give the Lord a round of thanksgiving. And so we appreciate your giving and your faithfulness and ask that you would indeed make giving your tithes and offerings and offerings of thanksgiving to the work of the Lord through this place, and we so appreciate it. There's so much to be done. One of the reasons why that number can happen is because so many of the programs operate in different ways right now, and, and that has aligned our finances in a different, different way, but we, we truly do need, need that support. In the Old Testament, and this isn't a discussion on tithing today, but when, when the Israelites were commanded to bring their offerings to the work of the Lord for the temple. I was thinking of that. It was both commanded. They were to be obedient to bring their offerings to the Lord. And then out of that obedience, the work of the Lord was accomplished. And so do I give because I have to, because God has commanded me to? Yeah. And when we get to a certain place, we get to say, yeah, we get to give. But what about my giving? I'm giving it to people I don't know and trusting them that they're going to use it for the work of the Lord. Yep, just like the Israelites. They were giving in obedience to the Lord, and they were giving so that the work of the Lord could accomplish. God had the plan, and for whatever reason, he uses you and I to fund it. Does he need your dollar? Does he need my dollar? No, the whole world is his and the fullness thereof. But do we have the privilege of stepping in through trust to give generously? Because that's where the New Testament lies in those letters to the early churches, it was be generous, lay something up, be generous, be generous so that when I come to you, Paul said, I don't have to get on your case in order to give. And so as your pastor, we try to speak truth and try not to keep finances to the side like it's some forbidden topic because the reality is, you know and I know that if the Lord has your pocketbook, there's a good chance he has your heart because it means we trust him. And so would you, again, this month, consider prayerfully, whether you give today or some point in this month or every week, whatever you do, you can do it online. You can do it over the phone through the, the office. And we just appreciate those gifts. I want to show you this short little video about uh, giving before we preach this morning. And everybody like those brand new at home, those brand new little clips coming on the screen. Congratulations to the tech team for continuing to develop this place. Enjoy this.
Imagine this bucket of water is your financial situation. Each one of us will face different choices concerning our finances throughout our lives. Some of us may be struggling to keep our heads above water as we face debt at every turn. Others may be right on the line with no margin for error. And still others may have even managed to put some money into savings. Oftentimes we allow these financial situations to order our giving for us. We give when we have plenty and hold back when times are tough. The book of Proverbs gives us a powerful truth when we view our giving based upon our bank statements. Proverbs 11.24 says that if we withhold what we should give, we will only suffer more want. Our first inclination when we hear this is to say that it cannot be true. But if we hang on to all our money, we will have that much more money to pay our bills. But the Bible doesn't concede this point. In fact, it tells us that only when we give freely, not hoarding our money, will we grow richer. By giving, we will end up with plenty, and if we try and keep it all, we end up not having what we need. What a paradox, and what a powerful motivation to give at the same time. Do you trust this promise? Do you believe that God rewards those who give in any circumstance? This is the one area where God tells us to test Him, and it's the one area very few of us actually do. We test His mercy as we run off like the prodigal son, only to find that He welcomes us back with open arms when we repent. And we are willing to test His patience with our habitual sins, again to find that He is slow to anger. So why not test His generosity and see if He does not fulfill our every need just as He promises? So Heavenly Father, we lift up our finances to you. They're yours to begin with. Every good and perfect gift comes from you. And so the fact that we get to have finances to um, use in our life and to be a blessing to others and to show our trust and give back to you is, is a sign of our thanksgiving. We're grateful for that. So thank you, Lord, that it's not, not about... Uh, an elite status, but that you call all of us to express our trust in this way. And so for every gift and every giver over the course of this month and the course of this year that has put us in a, again, a miracle month that we just make it through every month again and again. And, and that's been the story of 25 plus years around here. We're just so grateful for that. And so bring it back to these people in many different ways. And would in that obedience would people, would we be discipled and grow in our love for you? And as you use it for the furtherance of your kingdom, would many lives be touched? Would children, youth, adults, families, uh, people be saved and made whole and experience the life that comes from knowing, and having, knowing you and having a relationship with you? In Jesus' name. And everybody at home and in church loudly said, amen. Wow, there is stuff that comes through those masks. That was a loud amen. So last Sunday, I, I told you, it was Mother's Day, and I said that my wife uh, chose burgers and fries for Mother's Day special food, and that it may only sound like I'm a cheap date, and not getting her the, the, the steak mignon or the filet mignon steak or stuff like that. But uh, just, just to prove how uncheap I am, because that's... That's Christian, right? That's what the leader's supposed to do is prove how generous and how loving they are. Obviously not, but for, bear with me for a moment. And so a number of years ago, close to eight or ten years ago, my wife really wanted one of those wind-up uh, hose reels put on the side of our townhouse. And so it might have even been a Mother's Day gift. And it was a great act of love for me to put four holes through the siding into the wall in a very nervous fashion because I never know what's on the other side. And it worked well for many years and then you, you unroll it and you roll it back up and water flows and everybody's happy and we've got beautiful flowers that my family takes care of. Well, a couple of years ago, I figured it froze or something happened because that spring we turned it on and it was like a sprinkler everywhere out of the side of the house where this, this reel was. And so we kind of managed, well, actually what happened was at one point, the, the knob, the, the nub broke off that you you screw the garden hose into. And so a year ago, my father-in-law, who I'm glad he's a part of our marriage <laughs> for all things handyman and technology, uh, that's healthier than it sounded, just for the record. <laughs> he fixed it. 
Well, that lasted for a year, as all good temporary fixes do. And so this year, I, in advance of Mother's Day, not the day after, two weeks in advance, I ordered the same machine to go on the wall on the same bracket so that all I had to do was take the old one off, put the new one on, and voila, it would be fixed. So I order it, and it's supposed to show up on May 10th, the day after Mother's Day. You can't beat it even when you're two weeks ahead. And so we, we get it done, and then it arrived on the Friday before Mother's Day. So that was good. So I get it unpacked, and I get it on the wall, and I took a video of it to show you what would happen for a moment just like this, and I turned on the water, and the, the hose was on there, and I pulled the hose expecting this beautiful thing of beauty spraying into the flowers, being a hero of a husband, and it sprayed out all over the place like it was frozen all over again. And I still don't know what took place, but why am I telling you that silly little story? Because I was expecting, because something was brand new, because I purchased it, because I did it out of love, God, where were you? That this hose reel is broken, that I paid $100 on the internet to get here early to show love. And we won't talk about if I had just looked a little further on the website, I could have got all the replacement parts for five bucks, but that's a different story for the old one. But you, like me, you sometimes do something expecting a certain result. I expect that because I put out the money, I'm in advance, I got the right stuff, that I put it all together, that it's going to work as normal. How many of you have ever expected something and it did not work out as planned? If for you, those of you at home, everybody here has their hand up, and I'm sure you do as well. Well, one of the greatest gifts we can give our world... Pete Scazzaro says in Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, one of the greatest gifts we can give our world is to be a community of emotionally healthy adults who love well. And we're in our Loving Well series, and today we're talking about, again, becoming an emotionally mature adult because that's somebody who is able to love well. And we want to do that, but it will take the power of God and a commitment to learn, grow, and break unhealthy, destructive patterns that go back generations in our families and cultures, and in some cases, our Christian culture too. So we want to grow and break out of unhealthy, destructive patterns. Well, this is what we're talking about today. Assumptions and expectations. Because if you want to love unwell, start operating in high degrees of assumptions and expectation. Because if you want to offend somebody, if you want to get it wrong with somebody, all you have to do is run at at a rampant pace of making assumptions and making expectations of somebody else. Assumptions and expectations can be like playing with fire. If not handled properly, somebody's getting hurt. Either the person with you or your personhood yourself. Here's a story that I said I would never, ever tell publicly. And I don't know why I'll do it now. But the idea of playing with fire, it's actually an accident if you don't get hurt playing with fire. Lots of times, if you don't know what you're doing. Grade 12-ish, parents were away with permission. We had friends over, and we had a bonfire. And me not knowing it is part of what makes me a little bit uh, too communicative to my children more than they would like. Yes, dad, we know we're supposed to be safe. Yes, dad, we're supposed to be known to be safe. But it comes out of a background of not being so safe myself some days. So we had a bonfire going on and it wasn't really that great. And so what does the smart host do? Takes a jerry can of gasoline straight on and sets it down. And all of a sudden there's two bonfires. There's the one with the wood and there's a little bonfire with the flame coming out of the gas can. Very dangerous, very bad, very ugly. I didn't know what to do, threw sand on it, put sand in the gas can, and that seemed to deal with it because we all lived to tell the story. But that shouldn't have turned out that well. Somebody should have got hurt, and people have gotten seriously hurt playing with fire when they don't know what they're doing. When we run at high levels of assumption and expectation, somebody's getting hurt, and we cannot love well. Today we're going to... um, Today we're going to look at the lives of Jesus and his family in the chapter of Mark 3, how Jesus was able to live out his life in the face of some assumptions and expectations and and what we can learn maybe a bit about our relationship with him and what we can learn from his family in regards to what we should possibly do in maturing in our ability to check assumptions and clarify expectations. Everybody say, check assumptions, clarify expectations. If I do this, If I do this, I might love more well. 
And I hope no English professors caught that bad English. So we're going to Mark chapter 3, and I, I said this morning in pre-service prayer that I'm going a little different direction for part of this than I probably was planning to to begin with, and it risks me being a little bit too spread out. But as I prepared for this message, there was a couple things I wanted to do, and one of them is, because we've had some discussion about how to study the Bible, is we're going to look at a story that the way Mark writes it in the scripture is an important way for you to know that he writes so that when you read the whole book of Mark, you can catch what he's doing. So what am I talking about? Well, there's a technique that Mark uses, and it's an ancient, ancient writing technique, and it was called interpolations and or a chiactic structure, a structure, pardon me. And it's basically taking two stories where you have the one story, it started, then you put another story in the middle to drive home the point, and then you come back to the original theme and story and wrap it up. In Dr. Glubish's class in Bible school, I used the phrase, a McMarkin sandwich. You got your two pieces of bread and the meat in the middle. And theologians and scholars of who I do not claim to be use the phrase a Markin sandwich in the book of Mark because there's about eight stories or eight situations, which equals about 16 stories, where this happens. Where Mark starts by telling a story, he inserts another story, and then he comes back to the first story theme. And he's doing that to really drive home and emphasize. And some would say that the whole book of Mark is about that kind of structure, that the first half points to the Messiah, the claim is made he's the Messiah, and then the last half talks about his journey towards being the suffering Messiah and blowing people's expectations out of the water because everybody expected him to be a political Messiah and drive out the Romans when in the reality he came to drive out sin and to get victory over the enemy. So... So this is a pretty unique structure. If you want to get really technical with me, you just go A, B, A. And that's how you make a McMarkin sandwich. So in this, in this uh, story, we see the introduction, introduction and conclusion of another story, and then a conclusion. Leading up to verse 20 of Mark chapter 3, there's kind of three sections. And I, I just point these out to give you a taste of what's going on in the big picture. So the first section of Mark 3... Jesus is being watched because there's a man with a crippled hand and the Pharisees and the scribe are watching to see if he's going to heal on the Sabbath. And he, he points out his power and who he is by doing that miracle. The second part is that there's, the crowds are flocking to him. He's by the beach. There's people, all, all sorts of people coming to be healed, demon-possessed, are coming to be set free. And Jesus instructs his disciples to get him a little boat so that he won't be crushed. As somebody who's in, been responsible for organizing events, I find it very interesting that the speaker in that event, named Jesus Christ, was concerned about his well-being and wanted to get into a boat that he wouldn't be crushed. It's amazing what you can pick up when you don't see it the first 30 years of your life, now that I'm 32. <laughs> Why are you laughing? So... Jesus is just being pressed with people and pressed with needs. And he's in this boat and many people get healed. So he's healing and being examined by people. He's doing these big crowds and evangelistic crusades and healing people. And then the third part is where he goes to a mountain and he basically sets apart and he calls the 12 apostles to be his team, his posse. He anoints them to go preach the gospel and to, to set people free. And so the other part I'd like you to know about reading the book of Mark in particular is that it's not like reading in modern day Canada or North America. Not everything is chronological. When we, when we read the Bible, we think sometimes we're just reading chronological history. Mark is grouping a lot of stuff by theme and, and piece and stuff together to drive the point home. And so it's a, it's a little bit like a TV show that's doing flashbacks here or there. It's pulling pieces of the story together to get to a, a theme at the end. You could picture that a little bit of what Mark is doing. So uh, this morning we're going to make a point and then we're going to redirect and go in another direction to end making another point. So Mark chapter 3, verse 20 to 21, starting with the top layer of our Mark and sandwich. Then Jesus entered a house and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him for they said he is out of his mind. How many mothers have ever said of their son, you are out of your mind? 
How many of you knew that Mary and, his, and the rest of the siblings thought that Jesus was out of his mind at some point? You may not have noticed. It's not as quoted as John 3.16. Doesn't play as well. Doesn't get as much airtime. Jesus was perceived by his family to be out of his mind. And so I say those other sections, the crowds, the examination by the Pharisees, the time with the apostles, this guy had a lot going on. He had come again into a house and a crowd gathered. And so Jesus is doing it. He's getting down to business. Life is going on. There's ministry happening. Lives are being touched, transformed, and changed. And Jesus is just going, going, going. And Mary and his family are going, that guy's out of his mind. He's going to kill himself if he just keeps going like that and keeps behaving like that and keep doing what he's doing. There's a time around here. I'm much more lazy now, I'm sure. So, but there's been times at camp or at banquets or at church potlucks where I'm, I like to mingle. I like to make sure I talk to everybody, connect with everybody. And if I had a dollar for every time this was said, I'm sure I could fund the budget for a year. Sarah, you like that joke. I, thank you for laughing at that. You need to sit down and have something to eat. You're working too hard. Sit down, have a bite to eat. We made you a plate. Your plate is in the kitchen, Pastor Dallas. If I had a dollar for every time something like that was said, I'd have a lot of money to contribute to the church. Instead, they just gave me those words and made sure I got food like I needed it. Um, so they were just concerned but that phrase there, they went to take charge of him, it is actually the phrase that they use for when they arrest somebody. So you could get the sense that Jesus and Jesus' mother and family were coming to do an intervention. We're going to take charge of him. We're going to get a hold of this guy because he's out of his mind. Act one done. Top of the sandwich over. Or I guess maybe we should talk the bottom, the first part, whichever way you like to your whichever way you build your sandwiches. Inter input embed in there the second story which we're not going to read but the second story that's put in between this story is that of the teachers of the law showing up and accusing jesus that he's doing the works that he is doing by the prince of demons beelzebub and so the the story is that jesus really is crazy at first, his family's thinking he's crazy, and then the teachers of the law are thinking that he's demon-possessed because he's doing these mighty works and getting rid of evil spirits in the name of the evil spirit. He's casting out demons by using the name of a demon. And so he is, he's obviously crazy, and his, his uh, authority or his, his, who he is is being called into question. And this is where Jesus, at the end of that little section in verse like 28 and 29, he says, whoever blasphemes against Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of eternal sin. Now that is a sentence, that is a scripture that has haunted many a Christian in their life as they struggle for assurance of salvation. Am I really saved? Yeah, but if I blasphemed against the Holy Spirit, I will never be forgiven of that sin. Have you done that? Have you? Have you? Well, I swore I used God's name in vain. Which is it? Which is it? Which is it? At the sound of being trite, and giving you a little Sunday school answer, it might actually be a Sunday school answer, is that you have to put in context where this scripture is placed. And so that scripture about have you blasphemed against the Holy Spirit is placed in the context of the story where he is being accused of doing miracles in the name of Beelzebub. And so when you take what God has done and you attribute its power and the workings thereof to the enemy and to the wicked power, that is blasphemy. When you attribute to the enemy the works of God. And so if you've ever asked that question, if you've ever wondered it, as one theologian writes, that's likely never going to be you because a person who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit has had to have such a hard heart and cut themselves off from the grace of God that they would never be concerned if they've ever blasphemed the Holy Spirit. So, Start with Jesus' family, thinking that he's crazy. Hear a story with teachers of the law, thinking that he's crazy or oppressed. Jesus puts a lid on that. That story's done. Obviously, I'm doing my works by the work of God. And then it comes back to verse 31. And this is where there's some debate of, is this the same story? Is this example that we're talking about now the same one where Jesus' family showed up? Is it the same house? Some people would say it's the same house, the same timeline. Other people said it actually happened in a different city. 
I don't think it actually matters, and there'd be debates on both sides of that. But what matters is what actually takes place in verse 31. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, Jesus, and they told him, Your mothers and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Wow. Just to put the icing on the cake or the cherry on top of the banana split, Jesus has now done one of the most atrocious acts that could have ever happened in Bible times. You see, family was everything. You stuck with your family. Your family was your safety, and you were supposed to be helping contribute to the family and to their safety and to their provision. Family was everything. If we think in North America, in some of our circles, that family is everything, and we got to drop the ball to do everything, drop everything to do whatever we need to for our family, they actually lived and breathed family for real in that day and age. And so in this picture of this Markin sandwich of everything that's gone on, and particularly with Jesus and his family, his family has certain expectations of what Jesus should be doing, how he should be behaving. And the reality is it's far more severe than even you and I think because um, in the first part where they are saying he's out of his mind, there's a very good chance that they are worried about their status and reputation. Because when somebody's crazy, I'm now guilty by association. If you're crazy, now I'm crazy. Jesus, we got a little bit of a carpenter's reputation, nice little family going on over here. Could you just tone it down a bit? Because you're acting a little bit crazy. We expect you to toe the family line, to be in, behave in ways that's respectable. Anybody ever felt any pressure from their family? Some outside expectation of how you should behave, what you should be doing as a family member? Yeah, for sure. Well then, just to show how crazy Jesus is, he then redefines what family relationship is all about. And if you, just this is just a little parental warning. This is about to be some of the strongest language that I ever say about family because I get to just bounce it off what Jesus is saying. Who is my brother and sister? Who is my mother? It's those who do the will of the Father. That's Jesus' expectation. That's who the family is. But you see, he was redefining what family meant because the family was going to be those who carried the same values and followed after God and surrendered to him. That is my brothers and mothers and fathers. And in our North America climate, with all our comforts and all our privilege and all our money, access and resource, we cannot need the church and the family of God the way people without those kind of resources do. And we lean on those families and this family, the family of God, whatever church you call home, if you call Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior, that family of God stuff, it becomes second nature. It could become second place rather than second nature is what I meant to say. Because Jesus has redefined the family to be the family of brothers and sisters. Now, some of you are saying, well, there's all sorts of scriptures that say, yes, Paul teaches that if you cannot take care of your family, you're worse than an unbeliever. There's, we're supposed to love our wives. We're supposed to be providing for our children and being good models and mentors and providers for them. So this is not getting rid of our earthly responsibility and the love that God has put in our lives for our family. But let us not minimize the fact that Jesus himself has redefined family priorities as brothers and sisters in the Lord who will do the will of the Father. And when we get that straight, we will get all sorts of conflicts settled out in our life. And actually, when we get that family in order, all the other stuff begins to flow a little better and easier because we're not so conflicted. Somebody could say amen a little louder. So he is reframing it. What a statement. Jesus was accused of being crazy, and now he's redefined family apart from everything that was because it would have been risking shaming his family 
to disown them at the door like that. And while he used it for a, a preaching point, and I don't think Jesus had this malicious little grin on his face saying, oh, that's not my real family, this is my real family. I think he dealt with honor and love. But there's some people who would say that, that Jesus was annoyed or, or grieved at his family for asking that question. I think he took it as a teaching point. So Jesus, because he knew who he was and his relationship was secure with the Father and he spent lots of time with, Jesus, with God the Father, he was secure in who he was. He was with, able to withstand the assumptions and the expectations of his family of origin. Some of you are stressing about your relationship with your family or your cousins or your work colleagues or your fellow students or your employers or your teachers. But that's all you do is stress about those relationships. You don't do what Jesus did. You try to gain up enough courage to push back and to fight back. Ninja for somebody. But that's not what, that's not what Jesus did. He was able to be firm and direct and clear. He didn't cower. He didn't turtle saying, just leave me alone and I'll have a nice little life. No, he was able to speak clearly, but why was he able to do that and still hang on to who he was and not sin? It's because he was solid and anchored in God, his father, and it took time being with the father to be that way. So if you want to have healthier relationships with those in your life that are pressing in on you, but you aren't upping the game, so to speak, or the time with God, the father himself, all you get to do is live in increasing frustration. All you get to do is pile this frustration and that action and that assumption and what they did and you interpret it that way and you go from having a Markin sandwich of truth to a Big Mac of disaster. Bill, that one's not even in my notes. I just made that up right now. Somebody was taking the Big Mac name in vain the other day at a family gathering, so I will use it in that, that kind of tone. So Jesus, we're going to leave Jesus there for that moment. And just know that if you want to be more like Jesus, spend more time with God because you have more confidence and more understanding, more wisdom, more strength to do what you need to do in the outside world. But now we're going to flip directions, as I said, and want to end with some specific teaching around assumptions and expectations. And I could have a whole other sermon in regards to what our expectations are of God and how that's out of line. And how somehow we think we're in a negotiating. We think God's down here and we're in a peer relationship. And if I do this, God, you have to do that. Let's just make it clear. God's up there. His way is higher than our ways. It's trite. It is Sunday school to say there is stuff we will never know until heaven that he will not explain to us because we cannot fathom what he can fathom. But when it comes to my relationship and your relationship, your relationship and their relationship, there is a lot to learn. There is a lot to be determined in regards to our discipleship on how we're going to love well. Because if we do not learn how to handle assumptions and expectations, like I said when we started, you're a time bomb. You're a disaster. I'm a disaster. I cause great destruction and pain in my household when it is expectation day. When Dallas is expecting everybody has woken up thinking his thoughts. What do you mean? You didn't clean up the kitchen. What do you mean you took that vehicle? What do you mean that you left your, your room messy? And that's just me. <laughs> that's my room messy. When we think of Jesus' earthly family and the way that that all went down, it's kind of rattling, it's kind of discombobulating. But um, in regards to just person to person, it's, it's, it takes a lot of work for us to move and grow and mature in assumptions and expectations because infants and toddlers have a lot of assumptions. They assume that when they cry, they're going to get fed. And that's our baseline for learning how to live. I cry, I want something. I cry, I want something. How many of you know teenagers, adults, and senior citizens who, when they cry, they expect to get something? There's just less tears involved. Thank you for that hand. When it comes to assumptions and expectations, 
You are responsible to deal with your perspective on them and to handle them properly. You need to recognize how dangerous these are when they're unchecked. Jesus' mother and family operated in assumptions and expectations. Pete Scazzaro writes, Every time I make an assumption about someone who has hurt or disappointed me without confirming it, I believe a lie about this person in my head. The assumption is a misrepresentation of reality because I have not checked it with the other person. It is very possible I am believing something untrue. It is also likely I will pass that false assumption around to others. When we're dealing in assumptions that have not been checked, when we're operating with expectations that have not been clarified or decided, we are operating within a figment of our own imagination that we've constructed our own little world and we expect all the little players in our lives to do it according to the way we think they should and expect they should so that my life is comfortable, undeterred, uninfluenced uh, or uh, interrupted to go my way. But guess how many times the players in my world get it exactly the way it plays out in my head? Just about zero. And so that's normal. It happens to you. It happens to me. So what are we going to do when that's our natural fleshly broken down tendency to create our own world of how it should play out? Well, it means that we need to check our assumptions and clarify our expectations. You see, our assumptions as misrepresentations of reality or not true reality is, can kind of sound like this. I believe what I think rather than believing what is true. When I assume something with you without checking it, I actually am believing what I think in my head, whether it's true or not. And so expectations and assumptions, those are all fine when they're healthy. My wife should assume that tomorrow I'm going to wake up and love her and she should expect the kiss. That doesn't change even though I said it 25 years ago. There's, this isn't getting rid of every idea of assumption and expectation, but it is dealing with the stuff that is made up or that we are expecting to happen without being in healthy communication with each other. So how do we check assumptions? Uh, Mr. Norick was my gym teacher in uh, kind of second level elementary grade six and stuff. I saw him a couple years ago. He came to hear me preach when I got to preach in in Whitewood, and that was an honor to have him. And but he was—he's a great guy, really athletic, and he always used the word wrestle when it was wrestling time in gym or played uh, bulldog or anything like that. He loved the word to wrestle, and so I want to wrestle. I'm going to spell a different our assumptions: R A S L. I want you to wrestle your assumptions because if you get control of them, it'll help you in the long run. So first, with your assumptions, I want you to reflect on your thought. What are you thinking, actually? Have a meeting with yourself, as Joyce Meyer says. If you're somebody who acts before you think, or even worse, talks before you think, like I can do, it's out there and there ain't no reel in it back. When we can pause long enough to think and breathe, we are already ahead of the game. Have I actually, am I assuming something about them or is there any proof or any truth to what I'm believing right now? Reflect on what's going on. A, ask their permission. Ask their permission. When you're making an assumption about somebody, ask their permission to check that assumption. It's just respectful. So you're thinking about something. Hey, I think Leah made fun of my clothes today. Leah, can I... Check an assumption I have with you. She says yes. And then I say something like this. I think you are thinking that my clothes look stupid. I assume you're thinking that I don't know how to dress myself. The story that I'm telling myself is that, again, you think I'm dressed poorly for public consumption. Any one of those type of things. What are you doing? You're checking with the person what you're telling in your head. Brene Brown is the one, I believe, who coined the term, the story I'm telling myself. Lee and I use that phrase a lot. I've used it with other people on staff and in this church. The story I'm telling myself is, you didn't show up for six weeks, and so you hate me. 
Pastors think that way sometimes. Part of my job is to tell you how pastors think. A lot of us guys are really insecure. That's part of my discipleship process is to gain, grow in security and maturity. But when I send you a nice long text and I get back thanks, (gasps) they don't love me either. All they said was thanks. They don't have the time of day for me. You know, Brooklyn, that time I sent you that long text and all you said back, thanks, the story I'm telling myself is you were really perturbed with me and didn't have the time of day. No, Dad, I was getting in the car and was going to be late for work that you're the boss of. (laughs) Oh, okay. And love flows again because I checked the assumption. Silly little examples for real stuff. And what what was the last one? She spoke back. I had to listen to their response. Yes, the assumption is true, and then we've got something to deal with. Or no, it was all nothing to begin with. Reflect, ask the person, say what you're thinking, the story I'm telling myself is, and then listen to what they're responding. If you do that, you will deal with 90% of your assumptions that get you in trouble if you actually check them out with the person. If you don't check out your assumptions, you are dangerous. You are dangerous. A few years ago, there was a a visiting gentleman in the back corner, and this was at a time when we were having quite a few C23 youth showing up in church and coming to church on Sunday mornings. And there was a couple young men that I was just happy to see in church. And they were in church, and any of you who have been around longer than five or six years knows that there's times when I ask people to move seats or remind them that they're talking too loud or that this is church and try to do it graciously without shaming or embarrassing them. And so we got through church, and at the end of church, I saw this man go up to these guys that he didn't know and kind of tear into them about, I walked up to interrupt it, and I came in on the part of, that's my God we're talking to you, and when you're talking, you're offending my God, and you're offending me, and it's, it's just like, whoa, blowing my hair back in regards to the fact that they were in church, I was assuming was a good thing. The second thing my expectation was obviously a little more accurate because if I didn't notice them there and they were talking, that was at a pretty good level as things go at the Rock Church in regards to mess and interruption some days. But his expect, he assumed that they were being disrespectful, which them just being here was being respectful. And his expectation was they knew how to be in church and they'd gone there their whole lives and they knew how to behave, which is just a learned cultural thing anyways. If you know how to go to church at the Rock Church and you try to go to a church in some other country, there's a good chance that you're going to feel out of place because you don't know all the rules on how to go to church in their building. So you're dangerous when you don't check your assumptions and clarify expectations. If you do, you actually become safe. And that's the type of place we want to be. We want to be safe. If we can look at people, experience people, and not assume we know their story past the front cover that they're presenting. Siri, I'm yelling already. (laughs) Apple's going to get saved. You are safe, which means you can handle assumptions. You know how to handle people's mess. So we check assumptions and we clarify expectations. Jesus' family had expectations of him. You have expectations of your pastor. You have expectations of your church. You have expectations of your pastor and church in COVID. Well, I think they should have done this now that we're a year past it, into it. Our church could have done this. Pastor should have been on our doorstep more. Pastor should have phoned this, that, and the other thing. I, I can only assume that half of those things are are accurate and I probably should have done them. I just didn't, mostly because I couldn't and some of it because I didn't want to, I'm sure. But there's all sorts of assumptions and expectations flowing in the world and particularly shows up in the Christian world when assumptions and expectations are flowing on how everybody else is supposed to behave. And why does it show up? Because it's like an explosion because it doesn't mix with love. You cannot flow in assumptions and expectations in an unhealthy manner and try to be a place that loves and follows God and flows in the spirit and have love flowing and expect for that stuff to mix because it's water and oil. It just doesn't mix. Some of you have political expectations. I love it. I've seen it both in this church during the days of uh, 
Mr. Trump, and I, I'm not one side or the other, but I, I could hear conversations where some people just assumed that everybody was a fan and everybody liked him the same way, and there was other conversations that I, I heard where everybody, the person was assuming that everybody hated him and didn't like him a certain way, and there was these conversations, and I could see the person on whatever the other side was just kind of having their hair blown back because there was no room for what they actually thought. That person just expected it all to be their way. So I got to wrap this up. I got too excited. So we're just going to wrap up with expectations quickly from Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. Want you to help, want to help you clarify expectations. So first, you need to know what kind of expectations you have. And for most of us, a lot of the time, there are unreal expectations. First of all, that means they're unconscious. You're not even aware of them. You only become aware of them when somebody does something and you're disappointed or you get angry in that moment. That's how you know that they exist. They're unrealistic. It's an illusion about what you think others can actually accomplish or do. It's an unrealistic expectation of my daughter should always be present when I call and need her help. Doesn't matter if she's in school. Doesn't matter if she's with friends. If I call, I expect my daughter to be there. Not realistic. Three, unspoken. It's all in our head. And we expect those around us to read our, read our mind. That is not a fair expectation. If I'm thinking something, as much as I like to say, well, it's common sense. Anybody in the room, anybody at home ever use that phrase? Well, it's just common sense. Only to you. And you're a few penny shorts, so just for the record. And the fourth unreal expectation part is that it's unagreed upon. Until the person we are in communication with has understood and agreed to it, it's not an expectation that's real because they cannot participate fully. Expectations are only valid when mutually agreed upon. So what do we do? Well, you get rid of the uns. Real expectations are they're conscious. You think through and you get on top of what your expectations are and what you're aware of. Have a meeting with yourself. Number two, they're realistic. I've thought about that person. My daughter's 20 years old. She may not be willing to drop everything to come help her 46-year-old dad in any, any moment because she has a life. That's a more realistic expectation. Three, it's spoken. Where there's something that needs to take place, I've clearly and directly and respectfully communicated what I need or what I think needs to happen so that person can then, number four, either agree to it or not agree to it. Those are real, clear expectations. When you're aware of what you're thinking, when you realistically expect something from somebody so that you can actually speak it clearly to them and they can respond and agree to it. That's how you deal with checking assumptions. You see, you can be a safe place. We can be a safe place. We aren't. We're dangerous whenever we use phrases like, they know better than that. Anybody ever use the phrase, they or you know better than that? Maybe they didn't. That needs to be your answer the next time you say that. Maybe they didn't. And a dangerous expectation is when they can, we think they can do something that they can't. And so too often... We look at the other person as though they are all put together and they got it all under control. But in reality, they're just as broken as you are. And so in this race or this marathon called life, we expect those around us to run well. That they've got the good stride. I won't even embarrass the runners in the room or in this church with a proper stride. But we expect that everybody else around us can behave properly, think properly, speak properly. But the problem is we've got our own issues. We've got our own trauma and abuse. We've got our own sin issues. We've been affected. And so we get triggered by the way you do stuff. And the best I can do is limp, a little gibbled, because I'm broken. I'm hurt. And so we, when we clarify, check our assumptions and clarify our expectations, we have a better chance to be compassionate and loving because we understand that everybody is running this marathon towards heaven just a little bit broken as Jesus redeems us and redeems us and redeems us to love more well.
Would you bow your heads with me as the worship team comes? So, just want you to place your hands in front of you, whether you're at home or in this room. And maybe you have been someone who you have operated with an assuming attitude, you've made assumptions. Maybe you found that you have had expectations of people or things in relationships and you keep getting disappointed. I'm sorry you've been hurt. I'm sorry you've been disappointed. And I want to encourage you today that you can go to Jesus. He can heal the hurts. He can give you the courage through Holy Spirit to bridge these conversations. And so I'm going to lead us in a prayer like you to picture just even taking the words assumptions and expectations and putting them in your hands. And we're going to offer them to Jesus instead of being tools for destruction and immaturity in our life. We're going to give them to him and ask him to replace it with love that we can love well in these relationships. So Heavenly Father, we ask you to lead this time of prayer. If these words resonate with you and express your heart, you can pray them after me. Dear Jesus, you see my assumptions and expectations and the times in my life when they've been dangerous and hurtful to others, to myself, and even my relationship with you. I repent of my sin, my pride, my arrogance, my control that says things have to go my way. I repent of my lack of intentionality, of not paying attention to myself or others to be able to love well. So I surrender them to you and receive back the gift of communication and relationship. Help me to mature in my ability to love that I would not walk around with wrong assumption and expectation. Help me to be like you, Jesus, able to be secure in my Father, and confident in who you've made me to be while dealing lovingly and respectfully with those around me. In Jesus' name, amen.